Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Our nation's founders gathered in pubs to discuss politics, and so do we. I'm Erin Jordan of the Gazette, and this is Pints in Politics. Tonight we're at Big Grove Brewery and Tap Room in Iowa City, where we have a stellar group ready to talk about national, state, and local politics. Our panelists are Gazette columnist Althea Cole, Gazette Insights and Opinion Editor Todd Dorman, and the Gazette's Deputy Des Moines Bureau Chief Tom Barton. Our special guest tonight is Bob Leonard, a freelance journalist based in Knoxville, Iowa, who writes the blog Deep Midwest Politics and Culture on Substack. You might also recognize Bob's voice as a former host of a public affairs radio program on KNIA KRLS out of Knoxville. Welcome, Bob Leonard. So we'll grill Bob about some of his work later in the show, um, but I wanted to start off our national segment by talking about the new Speaker of the House. Oh, oh wait, 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 wait. Oh, there isn't a new Speaker. My bad. Um, Todd, can you catch us up on the latest kind of permutations over the last 48 hours or so? Are they voting again now? I don't, I don't know. I mean, it seems like they keep talking about it. They tried to make Jim Jordan speaker, but he fell short. All of Iowa's congressional delegation, the four Republicans voted for Jim Jordan. And then he tried again yesterday, and it got even fewer votes from his Republican colleagues and, and also couldn't make it. So now, where do you go from here? There's talk of the speaker pro tem, and whose name is... Um, Patrick McHenry. Yeah, Patrick McHenry. Patrick Henry, everyone. Uh, Give me the speakership or give me death. They're talking about making him into this, giving him some more powers to make him an interim speaker. But then today that ran into trouble and people didn't want to do that either. So as I said on our podcast earlier today, it's almost like they've got a river to cross, but they accidentally blew up all the bridges. So now they have, I don't know where they, they go from here. I don't know who could gain a consensus large enough to get elected, and I don't think the Democrats are going to be very eager to help them out. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks, who represents the southeast quadrant of Iowa, switched her vote Wednesday in the second vote and voted against Jim Jordan. She then received credible death threats, um, she said yesterday. Um, As you mentioned, Iowa's other three U.S. reps voted for Jordan during the second round of voting. Do we know any more today about why she changed her mind and these these threats that she's received? Tom, if you want to take that one. I mean, we haven't learned anything more specifically about the threats that uh, Congresswoman Miller-Meeks received um, other than she's not the only member of Congress that that received threats. There's um, national reporting that came out today about other members of Congress that have also received um, threatening phone calls, emails. It sounds similar to what uh, Congresswoman Marionette uh, Miller-Meeks received. We haven't heard anything more from her office. Um, I reached out to them this morning to see if we might be able to get a little bit more information um, about kind of the nature of the 
the threatening messages um, that her office received but haven't heard heard back. Um, also reached out to Capitol Police to see if they're involved. She didn't. She said that the the threats were reported to the proper authorities, but didn't elaborate as to what law enforcement agency might be handling that. Um, didn't hear back from Capitol Police. In terms of why she changed her vote um, from Jordan to. Uh, and, and now the, the name's escaping me, Granger. Kay, the, Kay Granger. Kay Granger, yep. thank you. Um, the chair of the House Appropriations Committee. We, I guess we, we, we don't any, know anything more outside of the statement that uh, she released um, yesterday where she disclosed that she had received the, the threats when she changed her vote to, to Jim Jordan. And, um, or changed her vote from Jim Jordan, I should say. Uh, apologies. Um, and forgive me, um, I'm... He's checking his email for the latest update, so give him a break. I am. I'm, well, I, I was hoping to pull up the statement from uh, the congresswoman that she sent out because um, for the moment it's escaping me as to kind of the reasoning she had for switching her vote. Oh, here we go. So she said in the statement that um, she decided to... Uh, vote for Representative uh, Granger um, because uh, she has demonstrated great leadership uh, by bringing forth and passing uh, fiscally responsive single-subject appropriation bills um, and is a staunch conservative. So that was the reasoning that that she gave for for changing her vote. A question from the audience, um, and it's from Stephen Kemble because he put his name on the bottom of the question, so I'll... (laughs) Um, he asked whether uh, Miller Meeks, her vote against Jim Jordan, has tanked or enhanced her prospects for re-election. Well, I, you know, with with maybe some, if there are some voters of an, with an independent streak that don't like the House being dysfunctional and don't think it should be placed in the hands of some lawmakers that are sort of more extreme, extreme than maybe some other Republicans, switching her vote might do her some good, although when it really counted, when we didn't know whether Jim Jordan was going to be speaker, she voted for him, and then by the time she voted in the, in the second round, I think it was already pretty clear that he wasn't going to get over the top again, so there was less risk for her politically in the, in the, in the House, and it, it might play well with some voters that aren't necessarily staunch Republicans that she was willing to, to break off, and... and uh, you know, I guess it depends on what happens next because, I mean, at some point you would think that they're going to have to vote again on someone and I guess, you know, we'll have to see who that is and what happens and how she votes then. I mean, based on the threats that she received, obviously there's a segment of her base that's unhappy with her, but I mean, right now she doesn't have a primary opponent and she's probably not likely to, to draw one and in terms of looking at average voters in the districts, uh, you know, on the whole and what, how it might affect her prospects in, in the general election, I, I don't know that it helps or, or hurts her because, you know, people who are unhappy with her, um, Democrats are still going to peg her for contributing to, um, you know, the, the, the logjam and the impasse and the dysfunction in, in the House and noting that switching her vote from, from Jordan to Granger, you know, didn't really do anything to kind of help that or to, you know, move things along. I don't think it'll make a huge impact as far as, you know, one changing one's vote. I I mean, you know, Republicans are going to vote Republican and Democrats are going to vote Democrat. I'm going to presume that there are mostly Democrats in this room, given that it's Iowa City and this is Iowa Public Radio. So let me ask the audience, is anybody going to magically all of a sudden vote for Marionette Miller-Meeks because of this? (laughs) 
Well, I think living in her district, she's all over the district. She spends a lot of time in the district. She spends a lot of time taking credit for what President Biden has done. And so um, we'll see if people, I've been to meetings where she's taken credit for it and gotten praised by County Board of Supervisors. And I sit there thinking, she voted against this. And, and if enough people know that, I think that it's going to make a difference among independents. In an article this week by Politico, a longtime Iowa Republican campaign operative said the 2024 GOP caucus lead-up said of the caucus lead-up, this campaign is so freaking boring. The Republican candidates have visited Iowa half as often as they did by this time in 2015, the article states. You know, Tom, I know you cover a lot of these presidential visits and others on this panel are aware of how often these candidates are or aren't here. Have you noticed a lack of energy or dynamism, as the article says? Yeah, so, you know, thinking back to 2008, 2012, 2015, uh, 2020, there does seem to be um, not as much grassroots campaigning. Um, We saw a lot more of that happening um, in previous cycles. And so in um, a lopsided election year where Trump holds a commanding lead and a grip on the party, um, it does seem like retail politics is flatlining to to some degree. Um, And some of the things contributing to that is, um, you know, candidates waited to see what Trump was going to do, and they waited to see what type of traction or reaction his campaign was going to get. They waited to see how GOP donors were going to react to to his campaign, and if there was going to be a, a eagerness or a receptiveness, receptiveness among donors and party influencers and voters um, willing to, you know, look at um, other potential candidates. Um, and then, you know, when they did jump in the race, you know, you had a, a tightened calendar then. Um, and meanwhile, you're also trying to qualify for the debate stage, which meant focusing more heavily on national TV appearances, social media, and small dollar, uh, excuse me, small dollar fundraising to meet the polling and donor thresholds set by the RNC to qualify for the debate stage. And so all of that reduces the time that you have on the campaign trail. And then when, you know, you do have time to kind of press the flesh, um, the payoff isn't going to be as large as we saw in previous cycles because of Trump's presence. You know, when Trump is sucking all the air out of the room with all the national media attention that he's getting with his many legal entanglements and drawing more cameras to courtrooms in D.C. and New York um, in Atlanta um, than, you know, the Pizza Ranch in, in Cedar Rapids, um, you know, the, it kind of provides, you know, less of incentive then for the candidates to focus as much on that retail politicking And so, you know, that's effectively cut off an avenue that, you know, was once relied upon by uh, lower polling, less funded candidates who, you know, would would use that retail politicking to try and shake up the field. And again, with just the the, um, outsized presence and influence that Trump has on this primary race, that makes that more and more difficult. It's unusual to see a campaign where the where the fundamentals just don't change. I mean, where nobody really goes up, the front runner doesn't really go down, everything is just locked in place. I guess probably the closest I can come to 
remembering something like that is when George W. Bush came to Iowa in June of 1999. He came with his big jet. He came with Texas Rangers dressed up like, like uh, Secret Service. I mean, he sort of came as if he was the President of the United States and immediately jumped to the front of that race and never relinquished a pretty large lead, even though he had, you know, he had several challengers, uh, Lamar Alexander and others who had done okay in Iowa. So it, it just, it just, it's unusual for that to happen where there is no room for anybody else to sort of make, make a move, like, like this campaign where Trump is just way ahead and everybody else is sort of just fighting for the scraps. This hour, we're listening to highlights of our Pints and Politics event. It was recorded last night at Big Grove in Iowa City. We'll be back in just a moment. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today we're listening to the latest Pints in Politics. It was recorded yesterday, Thursday evening, October 19th at Big Grove in Iowa City. I had to be away for this one, so Erin Jordan of the Gazette carried the host duties on her own. Let's go back to more highlights from that event. I I was listening to some political ads um, last weekend, and um, there was one for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and he kept talking about Trump, but not mentioning his name, and it made, for Harry Potter fans in the room, it made me think about Voldemort. (laughs) He who shall not be named. And and so I just, um, a question from the audience, do you think any of these Republican candidates, maybe in an effort to stand out, will get up the courage to go after Trump, um, you know, on a kind of personal basis? If not, how do they expect to kind of stand out in this field? Well, I, I'm genuinely surprised, based on what I thought when the campaign began last year, that, that DeSantis has just sort of faded out. I thought, you know, people that I talked to, people in my own family who are Republicans, they were very interested in this campaign. They wanted to sort of leave the Trump era behind them pick someone new that was right with them on the issues. They liked that he was a, you know, a tough governor passing all sorts of all sorts of bills that liberals hate while also owning the libs and and going after Disney. Well, I don't know if they cared about that, but but he, he did that too. Maybe that's what down, maybe that's what caused him to go down was the whole Disney thing. People like Disney. But I just I was just surprised that, you know, it seemed like he was making some progress and then it just it just faded and of course the reason it faded in reality is that he started campaigning. And well, I mean, and that's the thing. People just he didn't he didn't make a good impression. I mean, he, he tried the retail, he tried all that stuff. He just sort of it just wasn't his thing. And so and now I don't I don't know if there's no he's he's you know, he's gathered some interesting endorsements. I think the governor, if you know, he gave her sodium pentothal, would have to say that she would like to endorse him, but she probably won't yet unless she thinks she can help him. But with the grassroots and and the and the Trump supporters, he hasn't made he hasn't made much of much of a dent. 
I also noted that there was an endorsement this week by 26 Iowa sheriffs announced they would endorse DeSantis. Uh, and, and I think to me that seems like somewhat of a difference from the 2016 cycle when I feel like law enforcement was coming out um, and supporting president, former president or then candidate Trump. What reasons have these law enforcement officers given for supporting DeSantis? They like his policies and positions on um, curbing illegal immigration um, and bolstering border security. Um, they like, <clears throat> excuse me, his messaging and his, his pledge to or willingness to use the U.S. military to go after Mexican cartels. You know, they've talked about how, as governor of Florida, um, they liked uh, the actions he took to remove prosecutors that uh, he's accused of being uh, too lenient with violent criminals. Um, He removed one state prosecutor citing what he deemed was uh, her low incarceration rate and the uh, uh, handling of a case involving a man who was uh, shot and in, or a man who shot and injured two Orlando police officers. You know, they they talk about how they feel as governor of Florida, he's established a record of supporting law enforcement and, and again his his border policies and kind of his um, tough stance and, and rhetoric with regard to that. The sheriffs that I speak to point mostly to the fentanyl crisis and how much more fentanyl is a problem is a problem now than it was under Trump. And that's what they often point to to me. Former President Trump also picked up an endorsement this week of Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd. What does Byrd's support do for um, Trump in Iowa? Um, I mean, on the face of it, the Attorney General is one of two statewide officials that uh, have endorsed so far this cycle. Um, State Treasurer Robbie Smith endorsed um, Vivek Ramaswamy, um, and no disrespect to to the State Treasurer, but uh, this is probably the most high-profile endorsement that we've seen yet this cycle from uh, an Iowa Republican. So there's that. But... I don't know that it really does much for Trump. Um, Brenna Byrd is serving in her first term. She uh, beat Tom Miller by, what, a percentage point somewhere around there? I mean, it was, it was definitely a, a, notable, a notable victory, right? Um, knocking off a 30-some year um, incumbent. But, you know, it was a, it was a narrow win. It was a narrow victory. Um, like I said, she's, she's serving in her first term. She's still kind of establishing herself. And to be honest, her endorsement wasn't much of a surprise. I mean, it was kind of expected. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know that it really gains Trump all that much. I don't know that people put a lot of sway into endorsements anymore. And, you know, we've, we've established that Trump already has a pretty dedicated and ardent following in Iowa. And I don't know that Brenna Byrd's endorsement is really going to sway someone uh, one way or the other. One thing that it does do is, you know, at a time when um, there are those within the Iowa Republican Party including Governor Reynolds, who have criticized Trump for his remarks about abortion, um, you know, during his uh, interview with with NBC on Meet the Press, you know, when he was asked about the law that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed, the the so-called six-week abortion ban, which is very similar to the one that Iowa signed into law, Um, you know, he, he criticized that, calling it a terrible thing, and a lot of Iowa Republicans and and evangelicals in the state took issue with that and and criticized Trump for his remarks. The one thing that this does is is he gets the endorsement from somebody like Brenna Byrd, who um, is a 
staunch advocate against abortion. Um, you look at the stances that she's taken as um, attorney general and some of the things that she's um, enacted and implemented. So, so that's one thing that potentially it, it gives the former president. I think that's why some Republicans were actually a bit surprised. It, look, no, this doesn't do much for Trump, and no, this doesn't do much for Byrd either. Um, but because she is so staunchly anti-abortion, given the remarks that Trump has made about abortion and you know the six-week ban, don't exactly kind of see where that lines up, where that meshes. So yeah, Republicans were a bit surprised. The question for me is, did she do this? I have a hard time believing she made this endorsement without the implicit okay from Governor Reynolds. I mean, I think that I think that's a question. I also think Trump's response was very interesting, and that if she's the first attorney general from a state to say something, we know, based upon Matt Whitaker from Iowa, that maybe she would be a compliant attorney general for the United States for President Trump should he be elected. Well, and, and, and there's well, and there's and there's precedence for that. So, um, current South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster was the first statewide um, official in the country back uh, during the 2016 cycle to endorse then candidate Trump, and as as a reward, he elevated Nikki Haley to ambassador of the UN to help Henry McMaster become governor of South Carolina. And I think he's acknowledged that, I think Trump has acknowledged that publicly. So Henry McMaster was then Lieutenant Governor of South Carolina. And you know his golden ring had always been to be governor of South Carolina. And you know Nikki Haley was kind of standing in the way. And so as a reward, Trump elevated uh, Nikki Haley to UN ambassador and that paved the way for Henry McMaster to become governor of South Carolina. So switching gears um, to a, a subject that's been in the news a lot because it's, it's uh, very important is the attack from Hamas militants uh, from the Gaza Strip on Israel, killing about 1,400 people and also taking nearly 200 people hostage. Um, Gaza is now under siege by Israel and people there are running out of food, water and electricity. I wanted to ask our panel, um, and I don't know, Todd, if you want to start, how are President Joe Biden as well as his Republican challengers walking the tightrope of what to say about this conflict? Well, I think, you know, the two public speeches that, that Biden gave, the one on the, uh, the Saturday, I believe, or Sunday after the attack, and the one he gave in Israel uh, yesterday, uh, I believe. And, and they, they both were well-received by the Israelis and by, I think, the American public. They were lots of strong words, lots of commitments to, to stand with Israel. I mean, this was, a, this was a horrific terrorist attack, and I mean, we've all seen the, the videos and the photos, and, and I think Americans are, are, a lot of Americans are outraged about it, and I think the president sort of tapped into that outrage while also trying to deliver a more prudent message that says, you know, I, I understand you want to fight, you want to strike back, but Let's think of the consequences before you do that. I mean, of course, we have our own post-9-11 military operations that, you know, we, we got caught in sort of a quagmire in Iraq and, and things like that. So I think we speak from some experience about that. But I think, you know, I, I, think, I think that combination of sort of standing with, their, with them, understanding their emotions and outrage, but also, you know, asking for some asking for some prudence and also offering to provide some humanitarian aid to Gaza. I think, it's, uh, I think his message was fairly compelling. 
One of the things that's happened that's kind of in state politics, kind of in national politics, but um, Cedar Falls businesswoman and Democrat Sarah Corkery announced this week she will run against U.S. Rep. Ashley Henson, who represents Iowa's Northeast Quadrant. What is spurring this run, and what chances does Corkery have? So one of the things spurring her run um, is her feeling that um, Ashley Henson's uh, voting record doesn't line up with the district and doesn't serve the best interests of Iowans. So she's a uh, two-time breast cancer survivor. And one of the things that she mentioned in highlighting her concerns with um, Representative Henson's voting record was she was part of a national group that was um, advocating for passage of uh, a bill that had been introduced by Iowa Republican U.S. Senator Joni Ernst um, that had to deal with um, people who had uh, metastatic breast cancer. The details of that is, is escaping me, but any, essentially what it would have done is it would have um, reduced or eliminated um, some waiting periods related to the receipt of, I guess, Medicare benefits and I think Social Security disability benefits that people with metastatic breast cancer would be able to get. Waiting period. Yeah, that's my recollection. Yeah. Yeah, Sorry, anyway. About that waiting period. Yeah. So, uh, and according to Corkery in that meeting, uh, Ashley Henson declined to sign on as a co-sponsor. Henson's office has since said that she's supportive of that legislation and does plan to sign on as a co-sponsor. But she started off with that to use that um, as an example of concerns that she has with Ashley Henson's voting record. She also pointed to um, Henson's vote against the um, bipartisan infrastructure law her vote against the U.S. House bill that would have um, capped insulin cost share uh, to $35 um, for uh, Americans with diabetes that that need insulin, and, and, and she went on and on and said that she felt like it was time for her to step up and to challenge Henson in that voting record um, and said that she's committed to expanding access to health care, lowering prescription drug costs, um, uh, strengthening gun safety laws, and uh, promoting disability rights, LGBTQ rights, and equity for people of color. Uh, She's a mother of three. She has uh, a child who is gay, a child with a disability, and uh, a child who is um, biracial. She acknowledged that she has an uphill battle. Um, So the Cook Political Report rates Iowa's second congressional district as solid Republican, meaning it's not expected to be uh, a, a competitive race. Um, they rate it as a R plus four district. Democrats have a slight advantage in the district in terms of uh, number of registered voters. However, no party voters um, outnumber both Democrats and Republicans. And you know, Ashley Hansen has an advantage as an incumbent. Um, I think she raised like $740,000 in the most recent uh, reporting period and ended it with, you know, $1.3 million cash on hand. And, and Sarah Corkery acknowledged, look, I, I, I realize I have an uphill battle. It's unlikely that we're going to be able to outspend Ashley Henson. We're not going to try and do that. What she's focused on is trying to uh, build a grassroots movement um, and to get around the district and 
sit down uh, with, with Iowans, hear from them, and uh, share her message of trying to build a more welcoming, inclusive, and supportive Iowa and feels that that's a message that's going to resonate with Iowans. Okay, so um, Althea and Todd, you guys both live in, in um, Hinson's district. Is, I mean, do you kind of agree with that assessment? It's an uphill battle for Corkery? It'll definitely be an uphill battle for her. As a national candidate, you know, a national candidate in a high-profile district, which I don't know if you'd call Iowa's second district really high-profile, um, you know, in the past, the region has been, it's had some hot races before, um, most recently between um, Addie Finkenauer and Rod Blum, and then Ashley Hinson defeating Finkenauer, and then, you know, two very good candidates, Hinson and Liz Mathis in 2022. So actually, I guess I'm going to backtrack on my own statement. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty high-profile district. And you really cannot win in a federal district without support from your national party. And I think this might be one of the first races where we see the difference that is made by the lack of support that the Democratic National Committee has for Democrats in the state of Iowa. Now, I mean, Republicans can sit back and laugh at that. As a Republican, I always say, do not rest on your laurels, do not get comfortable, you know, pretend that every race is a guaranteed loss unless you pull out all the stops and do literally everything. But the reality is that, you know, in addition to the Democrat Party nationally not having a whole lot of faith in Iowa or support for Iowa or willingness to get involved in Iowa anymore, Republicans really like the second district in Iowa. The National Republican Party really likes Ashley Hinson. Ashley Hinson is a very talented politician who has been able to beat an incumbent uh, who was well-funded uh, and then fend off a challenger who was well-liked and well-funded. So to say it is an uphill battle perhaps is actually a little bit of an understatement. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that seat's going to flip, barring some sort of unforeseen circumstance. Although I'm a little confused, uh, the Democratic candidate, uh, I don't believe she's ever hosted a TV show a news show, she's not an anchor or anything. I, I, I don't know how that's supposed to work. How do we pick who it's supposed to be? I mean, you know, it's, it's, last time it was a battle of, of, of anchor women, so. But she's getting in late for one thing. I know it doesn't feel late because it's, you know, still October of 2023, but she, she is gonna have money problems. She's gonna have a hard time. She won't get any help from the DCCC. She probably uh, won't get a lot of help from sort of outside groups that spend money in these in these campaigns. Henson will have all the money she needs and more. But you know, it, it's you know, we we have elections, uh, so we can decide who wins. And uh, I mean, the Democratic candidate in this case could surprise us. Maybe she'll have a big moment and 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 get people thinking harder about her campaign. And and who knows what will happen politically, you know, within the next year or so. I mean, I, I can't believe it could get any wilder, but you never know. I mentioned this on the podcast. I'll just throw that in there. Um, there is a possibility of the race being competitive, and, and I think that all really depends on how things shake out with what happens in the House, right? How long do we go without a speaker? You know, if there is a government shutdown and Republicans are to, to, to blame for that because of the dysfunction that they have, um, you know, that, that could definitely bode well for the Democrat in this race and could change the dynamics of that. But, um, you know, time will tell and a lot can happen between now and then. And we'll be back in just a moment with more of this Pints and Politics edition. It's River to River from IPR News.
Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. And we're back with this special edition of River to River, highlights from our Pints and Politics event, recorded last night, October 19th, at Big Grove in Iowa City. Our panel tonight is Todd Dorman, Tom Barton, Althea Cole, and special guest Bob Leonard. Bob, in addition to your newsletter on Substack, you're also doing some freelance journalism. Could you briefly tell us about the piece you co-wrote with Christy DePena about the role immigrants may play in caring for aging Iowans? Well, thank you. I think that we have a labor shortage, a huge labor shortage. We have like, what, 26 million climate refugees. We have people wanting to get in that are good people and a tremendous healthcare crisis. We've got 75,000 or so healthcare jobs out there in the world that we need here in the United States, and we have, don't have the population to fill it. So those of us that are a little older, do we really want somebody to help us uh, when we get older and have somebody there to care for us? I think that we do, and the best place to look is south of the border or overseas, wherever, where we can help solve a humanitarian crisis and help solve a healthcare crisis and an economic crisis, and we're just sitting here not doing anything about it when we should be doing it. It doesn't make any sense to me. And, And so what I do is, I sort of nibble around things and try to learn and see what's happening. And then I'm, uh, Christy was introduced to me. She's this brilliant young researcher at, at the Niskanen Institute in Washington, D.C. And so I try to do the on-the-ground stuff and talk to our local people, our hospital people that need it, our community college people that are ready to go right now to train those health care providers. And our, our schools are ready to go. Our our hospitals are ready to go, our nursing homes can't fill the positions, and we cannot get bipartisan immigration reform across. And remember, we had bipartisan immigration reform on the table, and President Trump vetoed it. And we can make our economy sizzle. We, uh, uh, Christy and I had another piece where we suggest that you give the governors of the state a little bit more control over how many people that they would could bring in, and so if, let's say, Illinois decided they were going to bring in some immigrant workers that passed the process, their economy would sizzle, and Iowa would look to Illinois, and we would have to do something too, and so it would become a sort of a, we would have immigrant-friendly states and other states that's economies were collapsing. This is a no-brainer to me, and for some reason, I think it's become so politicized that it's used by a lot of Republicans to to not pass immigration reform because they like it as a political issue and demonize other people that need our help and we need their help. And I'm rambling on a little bit, but I'm just passionate about, I worked in Mexico for part of eight years and I know they're good people, hardworking people. And a lot of the problems in those other in those other countries are because of our insatiable appetite for drugs. 
And so we're helping, we're helping cause the problem when we could be providing solutions. But I don't hear Democrats talking about this either. Well, that's an excellent point. <laughs> Why aren't they? Well, because it's been so demonized, immigrants have been so demonized, you know, largely by the Republicans. And you know what, sometimes Democrats, I don't know if I wanna use the C word, but I will, sometimes they're cowards on these kinds of issues that they should stand firm. They, you know, water quality is one thing that they should be running on, and they're not. Immigration reform is something they should be running on. That's an uphill battle too, but it's the right thing to do. Sometimes you just have to stand up and say, this is the right thing to do. Todd, why do you think Democrats are not doing that? Well, I, I mean, I think Bob explained on immigration, it's a politically sensitive issue. I mean, it's, if, if you aren't for building a wall and uh, deploying the military and, you know, you know, bombing the cartels, you're for open borders. There's no, there's no in-between on that issue as far as they're concerned. Uh, I mean, I, I see all these social media posts by Republican politicians, you know, 100,000 uh, illegal immigrants were detained at the border. We have open borders. Well, how did we get the hundred and some thousand? How did we detain them? I mean, we obviously don't have an open border if we're, if we're arresting thousands of people who are either seeking asylum or trying to get into the country for economic reasons. But, uh, and you know, on, on water quality, it, it, a lot of it boils down to ethanol. And, you know, Democrats want to appear rural friendly. So they think one of the ways to do that is to champion the ethanol in, industry. And, you know, they, they sort of sidestep the obvious water quality issues with, with you know, overplanting row crops and corn mostly to, to make ethanol and the, and the degradation to water quality that that causes planting, you know, fence row to fence row to, to meet that demand and, and, using way, and using more fertilizer than you need and all those sorts of things, and, and some of that runs into, the, runs into our rivers and, and down to the Gulf of Mexico, where apparently we don't care about the poor shrimpers <laughs> who are, are catching smaller shrimp now. I don't know if you've noticed that. If you went to Red Lobster, they're, evidently they're smaller now. Uh, but, you know, so with, with it, they, they're, they're scared to talk about what Bob's talking about, which is how we need immigrants to plug giant holes in our workforce. Turning to the Iowa legislature, the biggest bills out of the 2023 session in Iowa were about education, a lot of them. Um, one of them prohibited books in schools that discuss or depict sex acts. The Iowa City School District reported this week uh, removing 68 books based on the new law. Um, you know, Todd, I don't know if you want to take this one or someone else on the panel. Can you tell us what books are included in that, just as an example of what the districts are, are um, considering? All, all 68? Yeah, that's, let's, let's get started. No. <laughs> there, there are, you know, it's, it's, a lot of them are the common books that you're seeing on these lists, and some are, you know, well-regarded works of literature, uh, Ulysses by James Joyce, and I, I think there's a school district uh, banning 1984 by George Orwell, and, and there are... Not uh, Iowa City, though. They oh, did. not Iowa yeah, City, right. yeah. 
so kids there can still read 1984, which seems fairly appropriate at this point. Uh, and I, I think, uh, is there a Maya Angelou book on the... I, there's a Toni Morrison and... Oh, oh yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is what people predicted, critics of this predicted, and they were told by legislators, no, no, you're overreacting. This is only going to be a narrow, narrowly tailored law. And what's happening is, as critics said, you know, well-known works of literature, award-winning books, many of them, of course, by LGBTQ authors, authors of color, are being removed from school libraries. It's not just the most, you know, explicit books, books with the most explicit sex, sex, because it just says sex act. There is a definition, a set of definitions in the, in the code, but it's, it's vague enough, and that's part of the design of the bill, so that it can have a maximum chilling effect, and school districts will play it safe rather than take a chance, and they'll cast a broader net over, over which books to remove, and uh, I just, you know, as a lifelong Iowan, I just really, I can't believe we're doing this. I just, I, I can't fathom it. I mean, I understand the political winds have shifted, but this is, I mean, we're in Iowa City, right? The city of literature? The home of the Writer's Workshop? And we're banning books. It's not, and, and now we're getting national attention for it. I saw Washington Post had a story this morning. Esquire picked that up. Charles Pierce commented on it. I mean, is this, when the governor says we're, we're really getting some attention for all the great things we're doing, is book, is book banning one of the things that we're gonna get attention for? I mean, I don't, I don't know that that's gonna draw anybody to the state. Bob? Yeah, I talked to a lot of teachers, and there's so much going on in the schools, these kinds of discussions that we're not even hearing about, that aren't public yet. But as far as I know, every school that I have knowledge of, they're dealing with these issues, and it isn't hitting, with the, press, hitting the press. And so it's bigger than we think. And I will say that if you're on the side of wanting to ban Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, I think that you don't want us warned about that possible future. Governor Kim Reynolds announced last month Iowa ended fiscal 2023 with a $1.83 billion surplus, which she says means that, that it's okay to start pushing for some more tax cuts in the next session. But I'm wondering to what degree are the, some of the past tax cuts that haven't gone fully into effect expected to eat into that surplus going forward? Well, the, I mean, their strategy has been over the last few years is to, uh, you know, the law allows them to spend 99% of the revenues estimated in December by the Revenue Estimating Conference. Then they can go in in January when they come back and build a budget and can spend up to 99% of that and put the rest in the two reserve funds. Well, what's happened more recently is that Republicans have spent somewhere in the 80s percentage-wise, and that's allowed them to build budget surpluses. Uh, and some of that goes into you know next year's spending as revenues decline due to tax cuts. And then they also have about $3 billion in the taxpayer relief fund, which is also earmarked to cover any, you know, revenue gaps caused by tax cuts. So if they continue that and continue to sort of under, you know, 
underspend all the big ticket items like public schools and universities and the things that they've given small or increases, or in the case of universities, pretty stagnant funding. Uh, they can build that surplus back up and I, I mean, I, I assume that that's what they're gonna continue to do is underspend on, on government priorities and put sock the money away so that they can afford more tax cuts. How long are they gonna be able to sort of do that balancing act? Well, it'll probably work out fine until we have maybe a recession or a, an economic downturn that saps revenues. Then they might find themselves in a, in a position where they have to cut, cut the budget or you know, do some things that aren't popular. So, I mean, surpluses are, as they're doing them, are ongoing because they build one every year, but they're also can be finite due to economic conditions. So they may find themselves at some point in a, in a bad budget situation. Well, there's so many ways that that taxpayer money, our money, could be used to invest in Iowa, to invest in our public schools, to invest in our infrastructure. The last time I heard, we have a severe mental health crisis that needs investment, yet we're talking about budget surpluses and further tax cuts that will only hurt islands. Right, I mean, we... Well, we are nearing the end of our time here. Um, we're at Big Grove Brewery and Tap Room in Iowa City. We've got our fantastic panel here. I, because we're at Big Grove and they have lots of great beers on the menu, the last question I wanted to ask the panel here, and this is kind of where we usually do our more fun question at the end, I wanted to ask them if Big Grove let you name a beer, we can all dream, right, that their next release, we get a chance to name a beer, what politically themed beer name would you choose? And I know Bob said he had a good one, so I'm gonna start down there. Okay, I might have to explain this a little bit, but I'll be brief. I was at a, uh, some kind of an event, I forget, with, uh, at Sean Bagnuski's house, Democratic representative from Des Moines. And uh, there were some buttons there. I wish I'd have grabbed a thousand of them. What that button said was, what would Bob Ray do? <laughs> Bob Ray was the greatest governor, a Republican, of my lifetime. He was a leader. He was the person behind uh, bringing the refugees from Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia to Iowa. And he did so many great things. I wish we had leaders like Bob Ray today. So what would Bob Ray do? So that's the beer title? That's the beer title. Big Grove, do you guys Ray have any do? beer titles with question marks at the end? <laughs> that, that could be the first. All right, Tom, what do you got? This is terrible because now mine has a question mark at the end. Uh, I was thinking along the lines of uh, what else you got or none of the above because nobody really seems to be that enthused at all with any of the candidates who are running right now for the, the, the presidential race. Um, so I don't know, that was, that was the first thing that my, jump, my mind jumped to. Um, that's terrible, but yeah. All right, Althea. Oh. 
Um, so I, I don't drink at all, or I, I don't consume alcohol at all for the extremely boring reason that I just don't like the taste. Um, so I actually did a little bit of research because I know very, very little about beer. And I did not know until about 20 minutes before I left to drive here that actually some beer can be made with corn. So I would take a beer made with corn and I would name it Corn Watch because um, Senator Chuck Grassley loves to take to his Twitter in the summertime and show all of his followers on Twitter uh, what stage the corn is at, and he calls it Corn Watch. So, in honor of Iowa, or in honor of the nation's oldest United States senator, I would name a corn beer, corn or Chuck Grassley's Corn Watch. Uh, I'm thinking we're in a situation where maybe distilled spirits might be more appropriate. Uh, there's, a, there's an Irish whiskey my brother gave me that's called Writer's Tears that I, I think I could get, a, get another bottle of sometime. Probably uh, I'd have them brew old columnists extra, 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 extra bitter. <laughs> so, drink it if you dare. And that does it for this edition. Pints and Politics, recorded yesterday evening, October 19th at Big Grove in Iowa City. I had to be away, so Gazette reporter Aaron Jordan hosted solo this time. Find out how you can attend future Pints and Politics at thegazette.com. Our producer and audio editor today, Samantha McIntosh. Sound engineer, Jim Davies. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.